thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Please take your Bible and turn with me to the New Testament book known as 1 Timothy. For some time now, we have been looking at this epistle. It's a personal epistle to an individual. Some call it a pastoral epistle written to Timothy because he had pastoral responsibilities. He's never called a pastor. It's really a filial epistle from a spiritual father to his spiritual child, Paul to Timothy. In 1967, a man by the name of Adam Clayton Powell II gave a speech entitled, Keep the Faith, Baby. I was preparing the message and recognized the passage that we're looking at really has that message embedded in it, the importance of keeping the faith. Dr. Powell, he was a Baptist pastor and also a congressman at the time. He had these words in his speech. He said, believe in God. Believe in whatever God is to you. Believe in yourself. Well, he was mixed up, wasn't he? There's only one God. Remember that Timothy was in the city. It was a booming metropolis in what is now Turkey called Ephesus. It was a crossroads between commerce from Rome to the Far East. And many people came to Christ under Paul's ministry there. He wrote a letter to them. We know it as the letter to the Ephesians. And in the fourth chapter, there are these words, One Lord, one faith, one baptism. There are not many gods, and if we put our faith in any one other than the one true God, we're not going to get anywhere in our development as people of God. And we're people who are to keep the faith, however, are we not? The book of Jude, for instance. Let me read quickly what it says in the book of Jude the first chapter, this simple letter written by the half-brother of Jesus, this is what he says. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing, listen carefully, that you contend earnestly for the faith, the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. The treasure that we have in the faith that the Lord enables. We know without faith it's impossible to please God. We also know from the testimony of the Apostle Paul, he says, I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life that I now live in the body, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. The more modern translations say faith in You'll have to take my word for this. The grammatical construction is gotten right by the King James Version that we were to live like Paul by the faith of Christ. 
How is that possible? Well, He indwells us. He lives in us. And it's His faith that we draw off of as we walk with God and with the Spirit and with, of course, Jesus Himself. The Bible says in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, these are the words of Paul, where he says, we walk by faith and not by sight. I hope you do. And I hope you commit yourself to a deepening commitment today to walk by faith. This passage of Scripture, which we're getting ready to read and consider, asking God's Spirit to teach us what we need to know about walking by faith, there are two main ideas that emerge from this passage of Scripture, both having to do with faith, of course. We find in this passage of Scripture that keeping the faith is our duty. We're going to explore that in some detail from this passage. Secondly, by keeping the faith, we prevent our own disaster. So let's read this passage and then come back and look how we are taught these two major ideas in these three verses of Scripture. Verse 18 says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you might fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience. Timothy was challenged to be a man who kept the faith. And not just kept it, shared the faith. Let's look at verse 18 in detail. This command, it's not an option, I entrust to you. Let me pause there just a moment. The verb entrust is used elsewhere in our Bible. I'll give you a couple of examples of this. It's used with regard to Mary and John, the apostle whom Christ loved. They were at the foot of the cross while Jesus, can you imagine being in the shoes of Mary, seeing her son crucified on the cross? And when he looked at them, he said to John, Behold your mother. I entrust her to you. And what did he say to his mother Mary? Woman, behold your son. When Christ died on the cross. The next to the last thing he said when he was on the cross, into, my, into your hands rather, I entrust my spirit. Jesus uses that word to say, Father, I'm free now of my mission. And I'm sure that I'm going to rise from the dead. Thank you, Father, that you gave me this opportunity and I have filled it. This command I entrust to you. Timothy, my son. The word son literally is the word child. That should ring a bell in many of your minds. When Jesus was gaggled with people, I mean, he was just overwhelmed with people. And the Bible says that in the midst of his teaching the masses, he said, bring a little child to me. We saw a little child up here. He said, bring a little child to me. And he said, unless you have the faith of a little child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And he went on to elaborate what he was getting at in that he was saying, little children 
are blameless in some ways, but that's not actually true because even babies have natural sin. But he said they're humble and they don't have to deal with pride like adults do. If you come to know Jesus Christ, you have to be humble before Him and recognize Him as your King and your Lord. And so we need to be like little children. We've already seen that Timothy was not a biological child of Paul's, but Paul had lots of spiritual children. As far as we know, he had no natural born children, but he loved them, didn't he? In the book of 1 Corinthians, he actually describes himself as their father. And he was in so many ways. Timothy was a man who was born of a Jewish and of a Gentile man. We don't know anything about his father except that he was a Gentile, a non-Jewish person. Out of the picture, what happened? Paul was sent to him by the Lord and gave Paul a child he did not have, that he was the closest to. And they worked together in tandem. For 16 years they worked together. Paul is getting ready to leave this earth as he writes this letter. And he's giving his last charge to Timothy. We'll see more of it in the second letter if we get that far. But what we know is that he's showing him here where his authority lies. In the middle of that verse, he says to Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you. Turn, please, to the fourth chapter of 1 Timothy. We could look elsewhere. We're going, in the interest of time, simply look at verse 14 of chapter 4. Do not Neglect, And this would equally well be translated, stop neglecting the spiritual gift within you. That raises a question. What was his spiritual gift? Well, if you read this passage and you read the whole book, what you learn is that he was a teacher of the Word of God. Verse 14 goes on to say, This gift was bestowed upon you through prophetic utterance, with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. That would be the elders in the church in Ephesus. We read from Acts 13 earlier how Barnabas and Saul, as he was known, and soon became known as Paul. When you read that book of Acts, he had both names given at birth. Paul was his Greek name, Saul his Hebrew name. We learn that Paul and Barnabas were praying with the other leaders in the church and the Spirit of God moved on them and they said, you are to appoint Saul and Barnabas to be missionaries. And the prophetic utterance that came there resulted in those two men going out in dependence and by faith in the Lord and God has done a mighty thing. Even to this day, we are still benefiting from that prophetic utterance given to the leaders in the church at Antioch, sending Paul and Barnabas out. That's the kind of prophetic utterance that is mentioned here. We don't know the details of it, except look at verse 13. I think it would be safe to say this is part of 
what his mission was. I'm talking about Timothy now. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Whatever Timothy's gift was, it was a speaking gift. Probably it was a combination of teaching and exhortation. And you say, what's the difference? Teaching is doing what I'm seeking to do today. Take a passage of Scripture, look at it, try to interpret it properly, and then help you and myself find application for it in our lives. Exhortation is somewhat different. Exhortation is the gift that Barnabas had. And Paul did too, quite frankly. He was multi-gifted. And Barnabas was known as the son of encouragement. That word is the same word, the son of exhortation or encouragement. Do you have some people that you really like to be around who can encourage you? Amen. We need to encourage. It's incumbent upon all of us. The Bible says do not give up meeting together, as some of you in the habit of doing, but encourage one another daily so that we will not be in any way lured in by the deceitfulness of sin. So, Here's this young man. He is facing an immense task. It's a mountain before him. Remember, he, by nature, is very shy. And all of a sudden, he's given this command. Look at the last part of verse 18. But by those prophecies, you may fight the good fight. We're going to run into the word good again in the next verse. And what does not appear to our English reading eyes, we would see there are two different words. They're the words that are used in the New Testament. The word that is connected to fighting the good fight here, it's warring the good war, really what it is. And here's, remember, Timothy is timid. And this is what his spiritual father is saying to him. Hey, you've got to fight this great good fight. It was not a fist fight. We'll get to that in a moment. Quite different kind of fight. But what doesn't appear to our English eyes again as we read them, that you may keep on fighting the good fight. The word good there, I want to mention this before I forget it. It is a word which literally talks about beauty. Something that's good because it's beautiful. So he's actually saying this fight is a beautiful fight. That must have astonished Timothy because any kind of fight to him was something he didn't want to have to do. But we know what the Bible tells us, and this was taught to Timothy, that our warfare is not conducted with weapons of this world. Rather, our weapons are weapons that are spiritual and are able to tear down all those strongholds that Satan has. And the Word of God is one of those things, of course, and prayer is another one of the th those things. The Bible says in the book of Romans 16, it says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And that obviously harkens back to the 10th chapter, which quotes the book of Isaiah, how beautiful of, are the feet who bring good news. So, what are the tools of our weaponry? Well, prayer, very true. And then also the gospel, very true. The Word of God is a weapon that has been placed in our hands too. 
And it's that which doesn't appear to be very effective on the outside looking in. But we do know, don't we? The power of God has come into our lives through these means. This fight that Timothy found himself in, of course, Paul did, and we also find ourselves in. It's an ongoing fight. Someone has said that God is the general, and the fight is not a skirmish or a battle. It is going on until the end of time. When I was pastoring during the Vietnam conflict, I was a young man, and we would have a lot of soldiers stationed at Fort Bliss. And I, I love soldiers. I love people, period. But I really, when those men would come home for R&R, they needed it to be away from their families and to be in that kind of situation. And I've had such admiration for those men. There weren't many women who were on the front lines back in that time, and I would have admiration for them. But there's no R&R for us. We're never pulled out of the fight. We're always in it. But remember, God has given us the equipment to fight the fight. He goes on to explain a little more about that in verse 19 as it related to Timothy and does to us. Keeping faith and a good conscience. The two weapons he had that he mentions here. And if you want to read a more comprehensive list, look at what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6. But here he only speaks of faith and a good conscience. Well, let's stop a moment and think about faith as a tool of weaponry. One of the several aspects of the armor of God given to us in Ephesians 6 is that we are to take up the shield of faith with which we can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Have you ever seen movies? I think of the movie Robin Hood that I believe maybe, I can't remember whether it was uh, him or him who were in it. <laughs> I'm thinking about uh, help me. We've got eight different names out there. There have been a lot of Robin Hood moves. Yeah, but yeah, one of those two guys or three are in there. But anyway, what I would see those, and I see them shooting those arrows. Remember that? Boom, boom. And they were trying to burn the people out of the castle or the boundary around them. And this is the way the devil comes at us. He see, shoots these darts at us, fiery darts. And they're aimed at us to distract us, but utterly, ultimately to destroy us, aren't they? The, the devil loves to destroy us. But what means has God given us to overcome the devil? The shield of faith. How do we develop faith? The Bible says... Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God. God has given His Word. Later in His description of the armor of God in the sixth chapter, what does He say? We are to take up the sword of the Spirit. 
The Word of God is the sword of the Holy Spirit. So God's Word is so critical. It's not for us to read occasionally. In fact, it is imperative that we read it regularly. You can't read it too much. And you can't meditate on it enough because in it is the tool that God has given us to improve and grow our faith so that we will be victorious. This is the victory that overcomes the world, says John in 1 John chapter 4. Even our what? Our faith. Faith in just something or somebody. No, it's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And watch Him equip us for any eventuality in our lives. Any bad things, if we would call them, or any opportunities, He puts them there for us. And we keep the faith. We can stop right there. But let's quickly consider the concept of a good conscience. Conscience is not the Holy Spirit. A lot of people say, the Holy Spirit's my conscience. No, He's not. He's God. Holy Spirit is a person, and Holy Spirit's work includes, not, it's not exclusively this work, but when I sin, He lets me know it. And the reason I'm so quick to know it is because I've been seeking to follow the Lord longer than many of you have been alive. And that's nothing big about me. It's just I'm 74 years old and you're whatever age you are. And I started following the Lord seriously when I was 21 years old. So I know when I sin, I know. And I'm glad I do. There was a time when I thought, give me a break, Lord. I'm always confessing my sin. And the answer he gives me, well, it's because you're sinning. (laughs) And it keeps me from communicating more effectively to you. And I want you to stop it and confess it and repent of it. Well, that's the good news for us as we grow in the Lord. Our consciences become more sensitive. But we're going to look at the second part. Here's here's the first part of the teaching here. That we know that we want to walk by faith and not by sight. It's our duty, but it's not a burden. It's something beautiful, not something that's a drag on us. It's the way we were created. We were created in our second creation where the Bible says that we are new creations in Christ based on the work of Jesus dying in our place, coming to indwell us. It's our life that we want to know and love Him and share Him with other people. And it's all done by faith in Him and responding when our conscience is pricked if not hammered on by the Spirit of God. So the next part of this matter regarding keeping the faith, keeping the faith is our, what, duty. Also, keeping the faith prevents us from disaster. Let's read again in the passage. Verse 19 in the middle. Some have rejected the faith is what he's saying, and a good conscience. 
have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Those who had suffered shipwreck had faith. Did they lose faith? I don't think so. They just put it in cold storage and they blocked the Lord out and blocked the Lord out. Some of you have done that. And the Lord says, okay, do it your way. And I can tell you from personal experience, and many could testify this, there have been times when I've tried to stiff arm the Lord and there were periods when it seemed like it was working. But all of a sudden, out of the blue came this rush of conviction and bringing me back. It was through a crisis that it happened. Not always through a crisis that it happens. One of the men that I consider a son in the faith, and he has been for 40 plus years, 45 years probably now, he went away from his wife. He left his wife and two sons for another woman. He divorced his wife. He married this woman. And I tried to get in touch with him. He wouldn't take my calls. He was living halfway around the country from here. And I was so heartbroken for him, his boys, and his wife. His younger son was living here and in a high school party, he and his buddies were drinking and they were fiddling with firearms and one of the guns went off. A bullet went up, it was a rifle, probably a 22, went up through his neck, did not sever the carotid artery, went out through the flesh, didn't hit the bones in his neck or anything. And I thought, God's going to get Jim's attention now. Jim was living on the East Coast at that time. He came, I went to see him, hoping I could see him and challenge him to get right with God. But he couldn't get out of that room quick enough when I came in. Now that hurt, my, hurt me because he was like a spiritual son to me. So I said, okay, Lord, he can't get away from you. And, and it took 15 more years at least. I got a call from him. He'd been in a car wreck. It was his fault. The man whom he hit was in critical condition. He himself was injured rather severely. As it turned out, the man whom he hit recovered, and he recovered, and I'm happy to say that tomorrow is his birthday, and he's walking with the Lord and has been for the last 10 or more years. God took him back. I began to wonder if he was saved to begin with, but he was. He was like Hymenaeus and Alexander. They're two examples of someone who suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith, and meaning they put their faith aside. They quit depending on the Lord. And look at what is said here in 20. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered over to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Wow, that's strong, isn't it? And this echoes what we read in 1 Corinthians. If we had time, I encourage you to read 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In verse 5, this same language is used to describe a man who was a member of the church at Corinth. He was living with his stepmother out of wedlock. And he was going along just as if it was fine. And the church was affirming him and his wife in that. 
And then Paul heard about it and he said, you have to approach this man and tell him that Jesus is not in favor of this. He needs to repent of his sin and then he will be restored to fellowship with me. He was having so-called fellowship with the church, but the people didn't do it immediately. Finally, they did. And when they did, the man, amazingly, he was overwhelmed with grief because he was no longer allowed to come and worship in that church. There's only church in town, and he was overwhelmed. In the book of 2 Corinthians, it talks about the sorrow that he felt. And Paul said, hey, we're not putting this guy on probation. He's repented of his sin. Bring him back in. So please don't misunderstand what's being said here, that when Paul talks about delivering an individual over to Satan, he's saying, cut him off from being active in the local church. Don't fellowship with him. And he goes on to say, Paul now, he says, have fellowship with people who don't know Christ, who might be living like that. Lead them to Christ and see what happens in their lives. There'll be a change that will occur there. But Paul says, welcome him back in. He has suffered. He's expressing godly sorrow. And so this is what these two, Hymenaeus and Alexander, were couple of these kind of false teachers that the book of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy is aimed to correct in the church. And so the goal was that Hymenaeus and Alexander would no longer be men who blasphemed the Lord. That they were able, we don't know what the outcome, whether they did return to the Lord or not. But we see that in this passage of Scripture. And what happened to these men, the shipwreck is a very graphic picture because it's always used to describe a sailing vessel which runs aground or has some other mishap at sea and all that's left are just splinters of what once was a seafaring vehicle. And that's what happened to these guys in that situation. It was disastrous for them. As I was preparing this message, I remembered a story that was depicted in movie form in probably 30 years ago now. And it tells the true story of something that had happened the last week of October 1991 in the region of Massachusetts and Nova Scotia. The people involved were six fishermen Bill Tyne from Gloucester. Two others were from Gloucester. The other three from other parts of the country. They were making a last run before the season ended. And they had had a terrible time. They were always seeking to land swordfish. And they failed over and over again. One last time, they were going to go bankrupt if they did not get a good catch. They went to the outer banks. You've heard of that. I'd never been there, but outer banks where they would fish for these sailfish. But that was fished out, it seemed like. So the captain said, I'm going to take you to beyond. And he named the place. It was a cap, whatever that is, further out. And he was dissuaded from going. People said, don't go there. It's 
the season is not good. It's time for hurricanes and so forth. He ignored it. He told the men what was at stake. They went. And this storm, which is called the perfect storm, even to this day by meteorologists, how three different fronts from three different directions, one from the northwest, one from the northeast, and one from the southeast converged. And the result was that those people died, all six of them. Nothing of their remains existed. They were warned not to cross over the outer banks. They went against good judgment. That's the picture in illustration form of what happens to us so many times where we take a step away and we take a step away and we don't listen to the Lord. We don't listen to the Lord. And before long, His voice becomes faint if active at all. And then some crisis arrives. And that crisis is designed by God to bring us home to Him. So understand what the Scripture says about faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And through faith, we can do whatever the Lord gives us to do. And we can be used by the Lord individually and as a church. That's my heart for you as your pastor. And it's not for selfish gain. It's just for you. If you don't have that kind of connection to the Lord, then realize you are the one who is shooting yourself in the foot. Because you need to do, know that you just surrender. I mean, that's not easy. It's tough. And you're signing up for warfare. That's in some ways even tougher. But know for sure that the Lord will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will use you in ways that will astonish you as you yield yourself to Him and live by faith and not by sight. Let's pray. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. We're so grateful, Lord, that You saw fit to save us by faith as a result of Your grace and not of works, lest any of us should boast. Thank You for seeing us in our lostness and our sin. And then thank You, Jesus, for picking up the mantle of Savior and coming and dying for us. Thank You that You are raised from the dead. Thank You, Father. Thank You, Holy Spirit. And thank You that You will never leave us nor forsake us. Thank You that if we are faithless, You remain faithful. And I pray this morning that people will turn to You afresh and anew and walk by faith going forward for their life's sake and for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.